You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, you are in your holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before you. We humbly come to your word tonight to learn about you, to learn about ourselves, and to learn about what you have done for us, Lord. Um, so with that in mind, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, at the end of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her three compatriots, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion, um, after having gone around, over, and through all manner of obstacles, uh, not least of which being the still 75 years later terrifying forest full of winged monkeys, um, finally arrive at the palace where the wonderful Wizard of Oz lives. Right? This is the culmination of their entire journey. They've uh, been on the search for the wizard to try to see if he is in fact somebody who can help Dorothy get back to Kansas, if he can give the tin man a heart, if he can give the scarecrow a brain, and if he can give the cowardly lion some courage, right? And so um, if you remember the scene, they come to the palace in the middle of this big green hallway, right? And there is, there's a weight, uh, maybe a fear and trembling that you can uh, almost feel in the scene, right? Dorothy and her three friends are kind of locked arm in arm, almost as if they're leaning on each other for moral support. Because, see, they've heard about the wonderful Wizard of Oz. They know some things about him, but they don't know the Wizard of Oz. They have heard that he's got the power to maybe ship Dorothy back to Kansas and to hook the other three up with the things they need, but they don't know if the Wizard of Oz is gracious or patient or kind or if he's quite the opposite, if he's angry and uh, quick to blow a fuse. And so we understand their fear as they walk down the hallway and then turn a corner as the camera pans out uh, as they walk into this terrifying big open space where they're to meet with the Wizard of Oz, right? There are these big tubes that blow out fire and smoke. There's a lot of noise, some thunder, some lightning, and a face that's cast on the screen in front of all the people, right? And it's, it's sort of a floating head. It's, and it's not a human head. It's a very eerie-looking head. Um, and we know that after all this, after an hour and a half, after the forest of winged monkeys, after this entire journey... These three have come to the wizard, and what they see in front of them is not the wizard himself. They see forms of the wizard. They see uh, representations of the wizard. They see pictures of the wizard. They hear words that belong to the wizard, and they see a face that's operated by the wizard, but they are not face-to-face with the wizard himself. They can't shake his hand or give him a hug or watch the ball game with him. Um... And so there is still, ultimately, separation between Dorothy and the wizard. The wizard is still, ultimately, unapproachable for these four friends of ours. In the first four verses of our passage for today, uh, we see a picture of Moses' first meeting 
with God at the top of Mount Sinai. Of course, uh, Sinai is never mentioned, but the picture that's painted for us is virtually the same as the picture of God's meeting with Mount Sinai we see in Exodus 20. There's a lot of smoke, there's some fire, there's thunder, there's lightning, loud noises. In general, it's sort of a terrifying gig right there. Um, Of course, no flying monkeys in Exodus 20, um, but there are speeding chariots. There is no haunted forest, but there is a Red Sea that has to be crossed, right? And there is no form of a wizard on the screen in front of the people, but there is, in fact, a form of the creator of all things at the top of Mount Sinai, right? The fire is there, the smoke is there, the clouds are there, the thunder and lightning are both there. And I think, as we try to put ourselves in the situation of the average Israelite at the bottom of Mount Sinai, uh, it's probably not unreasonable to think that the people at the bottom of Mount Sinai felt very similar to how Dorothy felt right? Um, God is not meeting with the Israelites person to person because of humanity's sin in Genesis 3 and because the people are fundamentally sinful. God has to put some distance between him and the people, right? We hear that the people can't even touch the mountain or even a beast for that matter or else they'll be stoned immediately, right? Um, They have to send up a mediator to meet with God on their behalf, and even the mediator can't see God uh, quite face to face, right? He has to be hidden in the cleft of a rock and can only see a part, a quick snippet of God's back. So for the people of Israel, for God's people, just like for Dorothy, the tin man, scarecrow, and the cowardly lion, God is ultimately separated from his people. God is ultimately unapproachable to the Israelites. Um, If you're anything like me, or most of the people probably in the history of Christianity, uh, there is a tendency that we have, I think, to view God this way sometimes. Uh, Martin Luther was one of these people. If you read his early work, if you read some of the stuff he wrote before, and even after he started the Protestant Reformation, You'll read of his uh, feeling or his image of God as somebody who is totally separate from him, as somebody who's completely unapproachable, as uh, somebody who lives so far away from him that he cannot reach God on his own, right? This God is so different from Martin Luther, so holy, so just, so terrifying that Martin Luther sees God as completely unapproachable and wholly separate. It's this understanding of God, God as completely separate, God as totally unapproachable, that the author of the book of Hebrews wants to set in stark relief against our understanding of God in Christ. Um, It's this mountain, Mount Sinai, that the author sets in stark relief to another mountain, Mount Zion. It's a blazing fire on the one hand and the city of the living God on the other. It's what may be touched on this side and it's a heavenly Jerusalem over here. It's darkness, gloom, tempest, storms, frightening stuff on this side and it's innumerable angels in festal gathering on the other. 
It's hearers who have begged not to hear anymore because the words they're hearing are too terrifying for them to bear on the one side. And it's an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and spirits of the righteous made perfect on the other side. It's a covenant of law, which was a good covenant, right? God gave the law himself, and it was good. It served a purpose for a time to teach Israel how sinful they were, how holy God was, and how much they needed the Lord to save them. And a covenant of grace on the other side. It's Moses over here and Jesus on the other side. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians primarily, hence the name Hebrews, who are for one reason or another, uh, perhaps because of social pressure or real physical persecution, are considering leaving the Christian faith to retreat to the Judaism of their past and of their forefathers. And so when the author starts off this passage in verse 18 by saying, for you have not come to what may be touched... He's drawing a stark contrast. He's saying, in effect, this is not your mountain anymore, right? Um, All of this dread, all of this gloom, all of this doom, all of this terror, this does not belong to you any longer. And as we read this passage and we think about how this was written to Jewish Christians in the first century, it's probably easy for us to fail to find some application to our own lives here. Um, But don't make the mistake of thinking these four verses aren't for you because you're not a Jewish Christian in first century Palestine thinking of leaving Christianity for the Judaism of your past. Because, see, Mount Sinai isn't just Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a symbol for the law, the capital L law, writ large. Mount Sinai is a a symbol for every expectation that you feel was placed on you or that you placed on yourself that you have failed to meet. See, every time uh, you feel the guilt of that sin, that one that especially weighs heavily on your shoulders, every time you think that thought that says, I have done terrible deeds, I have thought horrible thoughts, and I have said wretched words, there's no way that a holy God can forgive me, can make me righteous, can love me. Every time you think those thoughts, the author and the Holy Spirit through the author is telling you one thing, and that's that this is not your mountain any longer. As uh, one commentator or pastor says, uh, we see at Mount Sinai, God, in outward demonstration of his infinite holiness, his infinite separateness from his people, from us, we see his infinite justice, his severity, his terrifying majesty, and then at the foot of the mountain, we see man in his misery, in his sin, and in his death, because this is Sinai, guilty sinners trembling at the foot of a mighty, awesome and terrifying God. Mount Sinai, the mountain of fear, of dread, of doom, of terror, of law-keeping, of that feeling of the lack of acceptance before God, of that feeling of not having forgiveness or being made righteous, 
that is precisely the mountain, that is precisely the relationship with God that you have not come to. Friends, you have come to a much, much better mountain. You have come to a much fuller relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have come to Mount Zion, the dwelling place of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Because to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, to stand under the law, is to stand under death. God cannot be approached by keeping the law. That cloud of doom and gloom and thunder and terror at the top of Mount Sinai cannot be reached by human hands and feet alone. But to come to Zion, on the other hand, is to come to Christ, to come to grace, to come to complete forgiveness, perfect righteousness, and the fullness of life. Mount Zion... Uh, throughout the Bible is nothing less than the place where God lives. In Psalm 132:13, we read that Zion is the place that God has chosen to live forever. And in Psalm 50, verse 2, we also read that it's out of Mount Zion that God shines forth. On Mount Zion, there is no darkness. On Mount Zion, there is no separation. Notice the striking contrast that the author of the Hebrews writes here. We've got Sinai here and Zion here, right? And we cannot miss, if we miss everything else, we can't miss the total contrast between those two mountains. It's not like the author of the book is saying, okay, well, here's Mount Sinai, and it's like a 90-degree angle, like straight up. It just can't be climbed, like you just can't reach the top of it, and that stinks, but it's the way it is. So God has made for us a Mount Zion that's not quite 90 degrees. It's maybe like a little obtuse. It's like 100 degrees. And so it's a little bit difficult, but if you try really hard, if you keep almost all the laws... Um, in the Old Testament and the New, if you do the best you can and you scratch and claw your way, you might just make it to the top of Mount Zion. You might just make it into the presence of God. But that's not at all what the author is saying here. right? If, If we read this passage, we'll see that the verb tense that The author uses for the verb to come, as in, for you have come to Mount Zion, is the present perfect tense. So it's completed action in Greek that's uh, describing a current reality, right? The King James probably renders it best. It says, you are come to Mount Zion. This is something that's already happened apart from your effort, apart from your works, you are come to Mount Zion. If you are joined to Christ, you have arrived. If you're joined to Christ, you have come to the dwelling place of the, li- of the living God. You currently are a temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16. You currently find yourself 
in this crowd of the spirits made perfect by not your works that got you to the top of the mountain, but by another's works that got you to the top of the mountain. You are a part of a beautiful community with every sinner who's come before you and every person who's come after you, excuse me, every saint who's come before you and every saint who will come after you, worshiping and glorifying the Lord Most High for who he is and for what he has done in your life. You have come to God, the judge of all, not with your own meager works that are uh, still, as Isaiah says, as filthy rags. You have not come with these partial, still sort of sinful works to offer to God and say, here, I hope these make the cut. I know I haven't checked every box, but will this be good enough to get me into your presence? You have not come with those works. You have come with the perfect and complete works of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God who has lived a perfect life for you, who fulfilled all of the law for you, and who died a complete and full death on your behalf. He lived to give you his righteousness, and he died to pay your punishment, right? We'll read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Jesus is the one who became sin. In his being, he became sin Even though he knew no sin, he was counted as sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, Earl Weaver, who was the manager of Major League Baseball's Baltimore Orioles in the late 60s, 70s, and then early 80s was known more than for being a World Series champion for... um, yelling at umpires, uh, which is not a great way to make your money, but it works for some people. And usually sometime around the second inning, maybe the third, uh, Earl Weaver would watch a pitch go by his batter that he felt like should have been called a ball, but the home plate ump called it a strike, which obviously cost his batter a swing at the ball. And so he would walk up the dusty steps of the dugout, and hobble down the first baseline, stick his finger in the umpire's face, and probably among some other words would say, are these calls as good as it's going to get from you? Can I expect this same stuff all night, or is this going to get any better? Is this going to get any better? I think that's the question we ask when we sort of uh, walk ourselves over to Mount Sinai in the midst of our Christian life, when we uh, remember all the sins we've committed, when we remember how sinful we really are, and when we think of all the things we didn't do that we should have or the things we shouldn't have done that we did do, we hike ourselves over right to the bottom of Mount Sinai and we observe this terrifying display Is this going to get any better? It's the question that our passage tonight in the whole book of Hebrews answers with a resounding yes. It's going to get better. In fact, it already has gotten better. You already are at Mount Zion. You already have this experience of God's unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. You are already here, presently experiencing this reality in your own life. But not only has it gotten better, it will 
get better. <clears throat> Your guilt is gone. My guilt is gone. But our sin is not. Death is defeated, but this is something that still affects us. Sickness and pain aren't eternal, but they're still things we have to deal with. Um, friends, as sure as God has brought, Mount, brought us to Mount Zion in this life, he'll bring Mount Zion to earth very soon. A day is coming when we won't be able to sin, when we won't be able to separate ourselves from the Lord. A day is coming when death will be no more. And a day is coming when sickness and pain will vanish. The, the time is coming when you'll never walk into another hospital room and hear the words, you have cancer. A time is coming when you'll never have to call somebody and say the horrible words, there's been a terrible accident. The time is coming when you'll never again watch your father or grandfather mentally deteriorate with Alzheimer's disease. Legs and arms, which haven't worked for decades, will dance and move before the throne of God. Mouths, which have been shut, will sing forth his praises in this group of innumerable angels with festal gathering. And eyes, which have been darkened for years, will see Christ as he is at the right hand of the Father with the Holy Spirit and glorious majesty and beauty. Mount Zion, even as we experience it now, is not the end of things, but it is the certain down payment on a glorious future with God and his people in his presence forever. We started with the Wizard of Oz, so it feels right to sort of finish there as well. Um, if you watch after that scene you'll see the Wizard of Oz sort of get unmasked, right? He comes out from behind the screen and turns out to be a sort of unremarkable old guy, right? Like, he can, uh, he can get Dorothy where she needs to go. He can give the Tin Man a heart. He can give the Scarecrow a brain. And he can give the Lion courage. But that's about it, right? He sort of gets in his hot air balloon and rolls off. When the clouds clear at Mount Sinai... And when Jesus leaves his throne above, living in the form of God and the form of man, comes to earth, we see uh, anything but an unremarkable man. We see a suffering servant, and we see a conquering king. We see a man who is both human and God, fully on each side, who is coming once to live for us and to die for our sins, and who's coming again to wipe every tear from our eyes and to make all things new. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.